Good morning, everyone. Welcome to City on a Hill. My name's Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's good to be with you this morning. We're going to be continuing our series in John, the book of John, called Life in His Name. So if you would find your copy of Scripture, we're going to pick up right where we left off last week. So that's John chapter 3, verse 22, if you'd like to find your way there. If you haven't had a chance yet to grab a scripture journal for the book of John, you're welcome to grab one of those in the back as well. I wanted to, um, since this is the first time I've had a a microphone since uh, Pastor Appreciation Sunday, I just want to thank everyone who uh, encouraged us or wrote cards or gave gifts or or whatever you did. Um, uh, Michelle and I were, were really blessed by it and we of course, weren't weren't expecting it, or if you had asked us how much we were anticipating, I think, I think our our what we were anticipating was kind of just blown away by your guys' uh, generosity. So, uh, just wanted to express that we we felt super loved uh, and cared for and appreciated by you guys, and I'm thankful to the Lord for uh, how He's worked in your lives to to make you kind of that generosity and that love towards us. So, thank you guys. But you didn't give me this platform to talk about myself. You gave me this platform so I could talk about what shows I'm watching. So my, Michelle and I, right now, we've, we've seen it before, but we're going through the Harry Potter uh, movie series right now. We're, we're re-watching it. So uh, I don't know if you've uh, seen that before yourself. But in the, the third book or the third installment, The Prisoner of Azkaban, uh, there's this character, Sirius Black, which... Uh, we're led to believe throughout uh, the movie, there's his, his picture right there, right? They set him up to be the bad guy. He's supposed to be a murderer. He's supposed to be responsible for Harry Potter's parents being killed by the, the big bad guy, Voldemort. And it isn't until the, spoiler alert, end of the movie, but also, this book was written in 1999, so if you haven't gotten the ending by now, like, you're probably not going to read it. Also, it makes me feel old because I like, grew up with Harry Potter like 24 years ago. Um, spoiler alert, at the end of the book, we find out actually Sirius Black is innocent. He's one of the good guys, and, and Harry's a godfather. It's actually uh, a different character, Peter Pettigrew, who uh, betrayed Harry's parents, right? So we seem to be a really bad guy, the the bad guy in this book, and he turned out to actually be a really good guy. Similarly, in the the Lord of the Rings world, right, another kind of series of books slash films that have really impacted our culture, you have the main antagonist, the main bad guy, Sauron. Well, before the the main trilogy that we all know and love and, and we all think is the greatest books slash movies of all time. But before that, right, there's other ones that hardly any of us have read uh, where, where Sauron kind of comes across as this kind of uh, fair young man and he's, he's kind of known for his generosity and sharing his vast wisdom and knowledge with the peoples of Middle Earth and, and he, he tricks everyone to, into making these magic rings. And later he turns into and reveals his true form, which is that kind of black figure on the right. And he uses that, those rings he made them uh, create to kind of enslave the leaders of, of the peoples of, 
of Middle Earth. So he appeared to be a really good guy and really generous, only to find out later that he was actually the bad guy, the evil guy. Throughout our our culture and throughout our great works, we see this theme time and time again of someone or something appearing to be a certain way, and it seems so sure that they are, only to find out later that the opposite is true. And I think that's part of what makes them so compelling is this kind of a a fundamental experience that we all share. We've all seen things like this in our lives and it speaks to us and it's part of what makes them so great literary works. But it's not something unique to our culture or our time. This idea of something appearing to be something and then actually being the opposite. 2 Corinthians 11.14 says, And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Satan, this this purest form of evil we know about, appears to be, can come across as an angel of light, a being of good. And so often we do the opposite with God. We know he's good, he's perfectly good, but so often through the lens of our circumstances and our suffering, through our kind of limited knowledge and perspective, maybe putting on some some glasses of bitterness, Jesus can appear like the bad guy. He can appear like less than he truly is. Maybe we miss out on the fullness of who he is. And like Sirius Black, he can appear to be the bad guy when he's been the good guy all along. And when that happens, when we see Jesus like that, then all of a sudden, me being in control or me being after my own glory or, or me kind of creating my own purpose for my life, suddenly that seems like that could be a good idea. And unfortunately, ever since the fall, that's kind of been our natural bent as a human race. We want to make ourselves the point. And the more we try to be the point, the more our culture tries to make each and every one of us the point, we find instead the unhappier we become. But God, thankfully, also gave us the solution and and has the solution for us this morning in our passage, which is our big idea. It's this, that when you put Jesus first in your life, then you'll find the joy you long for. When you put Jesus first in your life, then you'll find the joy that you long for. So the title for today's message is, I am second. And we're going to be talking about three things that must be true when Jesus is first. That I am second, that I find joy, and that I see Jesus for who he truly is. But first, let's pray and ask for his help this morning. God, thank you for the opportunity to be together this morning and to to worship you and to hear from your word and just ask that you would speak through me, that you would speak through your perfect word, that I would go forth and change hearts. Help us to see you for who you truly are. Help us to put 
you first, in the fullness of you. Help us now to, to hear your word and to respond, and that our, our lives would be lived according to it. In your son's name we pray, amen. Hopefully you've found your way to John chapter 3, verse 22 right now. I'm going to uh, read our passage this morning in a few chunks, but we're going to start with the first five verses right now. Verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. So after this uh, discussion with Nicodemus, we, we heard about last week, uh, which if you remember is in Jerusalem. Jesus and his disciples go out into the uh, countryside, and we can just think of that as just a more rural area than the, the urban kind of downtown Jerusalem. In verse 22, uh, seems to indicate they remain there for some time. They were, they were baptizing there, and we find out later in John 4 that, in fact, uh, Jesus actually wasn't doing any of the baptizing himself, but it was his disciples and at the same time, John the Baptist is continuing his ministry and baptizing people, we're told, at uh, Anon. So we, we don't know exactly where uh, Anon was, but we kind of have an idea based on what we know about uh, Tel Salim. Uh, so, so Jesus and his disciples, you can see Jerusalem at the bottom there in Judea. They probably went east uh, towards the, the, the River Jordan and then all the way uh, uh, about the middle, middle top-ish, where the Decapolis and Samaria meet, is by, also by the River Jordan, because like they said, they needed water for all the baptisms, is they think-ish where they were. Uh, here's part of the cool part, though, is that um, Jesus and his disciples were probably close to the part of the wilderness to where John the Baptist was when Jesus got baptized by him. And so... John had been baptizing near there and was having great success in his ministry. Now he's kind of like moved on. And now Jesus and his disciples are in that same spot and they're having great success in their ministry. Now as we look at verse 24, it's kind of a curious statement because they just told us John is baptizing. He's having these discussion with his disciples so why do we need to be told that he's not in prison yet? That seems fairly obvious. Like, hey, he's running around doing all these things. But I think John is trying to place these events in a moment in time for us. So we, we hear from the other gospels that after John the Baptist is imprisoned, Jesus goes and preaches in Galilee. So what he's saying here is like, hey, all this stuff happens before Jesus goes to Galilee. I think that's kind of the extent of why he says that. And in verse 25, we kind of come to it. We're with John the Baptist and his disciples are having this discussion with a Jew. Now we're not told uh, what it is other than it's about purification. So maybe it's 
you know, one of the ideas is it's about the Jewish rites of purification versus uh, what John the Baptist was teaching and his baptism. And some people think it's the differences between John the Baptist's baptism and Jesus's baptism that he and the disciples, uh, their group was doing. I'm a little more inclined to that one because of the discussion that follows. But whatever the case, apparently by verse 26, it kind of led them to to ask John the Baptist, uh, almost complaining to him, hey, this Jesus guy is baptizing and everyone is going to him. And his disciples this morning are going to be an example to us of uh, what not to do or how not to respond while John the Baptist is going to be our example uh, to follow or our example to emulate. So let's see what happens in the next four verses. Starting at verse 27, John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. So while, while John's disciples are concerned kind of, kind of in the most favorable light for their, their ministry, maybe in the least favorable life, their, their own popularity, in contrast, John is rejoicing to see Jesus becoming more and more popular. So they're each reacting to the same thing. John and his disciples are reacting to to people leaving and going to Jesus, but they respond in totally different ways. Why is that? Well, I think it, it has to do, like so many other things in life, with what's in their heart, or what are they desiring? Who is first? And I think we, we kind of get this intuitively. We see it in our lives, even though we don't stop and think about it often. So in a, in, a, in a week, just over a week, it's going to be Halloween, right? And, and people respond differently to Halloween, especially adults. I think kids are a little more simple, right? Like kids want to stay up late. These are their desires, right? To stay up late and eat candy. And they also won't get fat. Like maybe some of us would, I don't know. <laughs> right? So of course they love Halloween, right? But for adults, it's a little bit more of a mixed bag. So some of us have, have joy because there's a ministry opportunity and, and we get to do things like trunk or treat. So shameless plug if you're not planning on participating yet. <laughs> and there's joy in that if we desire a ministry opportunity in that. Some of us, we would call ourselves not, not Halloween people. So uh, no decorations, uh, maybe a pumpkin out on the porch, you know, something like that. Uh, and then when the night comes around, you're turning off all the lights, you're shutting all the blinds, like, I'm going to pretend I'm not home and like hide and just pray that no one rings the doorbell anyway because they, they're, they're bold and, and are looking for candy, right? Don't like the decorations, don't like the holiday, the, whole, the, the aesthetics of the whole thing. You're just, just don't, not about Halloween, right? And then there's some adults that are like, yeah, Halloween's great. I love the, it's so fun. Like it's just a fun holiday, not corrupted by consumerism and, and gifts and, and all that sort of stuff, right? And, and I love the, the scariness and the scary movies and all that stuff and the Halloween, the whole thing, right? We're all experiencing the same holiday. And yet because of these different preferences and different desires in our heart, we're all responding 
differently. And I think it's the same here. Because of what was in John's disciples' hearts and wanting, wanting their ministry to thrive, they responded a certain way, wanting to be first. And John the Baptist, knowing the point is Jesus, knowing Jesus is supposed to be first, knowing that, that his role, his point, the whole time was to, to point to Jesus, he was able to rejoice. And that's kind of our first point this morning. It's that when Jesus is first, that I must be second. When, when Jesus is first, I must be second. That's what this analogy of the bride and the bridegroom and the friend of the bridegroom are getting at. I'm just going to say groom because we never say bridegroom anymore. The friend of the groom is, is roughly equivalent to a, a best man, except uh, in kind of ancient Near East Judean weddings, uh, they didn't just plan like the bachelor party like best man's do today, right? They pretty much plan most of the details of the wedding and the reception. So if, if that was true for our culture and you asked me like, hey, you want to be my best man? I'd be like, ah, don't you like anyone better, right? Don't you have a closer friend or something? Like who wants to plan all those details, right? It's like the worst part of, of um, being engaged is, is planning the whole thing, right? So, but anyway, good for them. <laughs> so for, but for this analogy that kind of that, that um, author, author John is giving here, John the Baptist is this, best man, this friend of the groom, and Jesus is the groom, but who is the bride? It's a bit trickier. In the New Testament, the church is often referred to as the bride. That hasn't been written yet. So how would John and his disciples, the original hearers, how would they have understood this? And I, I think they would have thought of... Um, kind of a similar idea. There's, there's several passages in the Old Testament where uh, either Israel or kind of the faithful remnant in Israel is referred to as God's bride. And I'll, I'll just give you kind of one example. There's more. Uh, Jeremiah 2.2. Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. And just like the, the best man at a wedding, or he should, is rejoicing at the union of the groom and the bride, John the Baptist is rejoicing that the, the faithful remnant of Israel who is looking forward to being with God, finally unified with God on earth, come in the flesh in the form of Jesus. He's rejoicing in that union. Just like the best man at a wedding. And in contrast, you have John's the disciples who are like uh, wedding guests. I don't know if you've ever uh, sat with anyone at a wedding like this that, that tries to make the whole wedding about them, right? They're like, about meeting their needs. Like, wow, this is taking a long time to get to get these pictures taken, like, let's go. Like, I want to get to this dinner. Or like, oh, the appetizers have run out. Like, right, they're making it about them. My ministry is decreasing. They're trying to make themselves the point. And I think the lesson for us in this is that 
Jesus is first and I am second. Your life, your health, your money, your circumstances are not first and foremost about you. They're about God. And that's one way to think about true humility. I think our culture has a lot of ideas about what humility is, and um, that's why I feel like I talk about it a lot, or at least I feel like I talk about it. I don't know if I actually talk about it a lot. So I feel like I talk about it a lot. Because so often today, true humility is seen as um, a sort of kind of degrading your own talents and gifts. Or, or seeing how they stack up to others and saying, well, I'm not as good as those people, right? It's kind of like, a, like an Eeyore moment. I've been watching a lot of Winnie the Pooh lately, myself, with my, my two-year-old. It's kind, of like a, it's kind of like an Eeyore moment, right? Like, oh, if I had a party, no one would come, you know, sort of thing, right? This little, this little like, pity party. That's sometimes called humility, but even as you hear it, you're like, is that really... Or humility is, you know, just not shoving your talents in other people's faces. Oh, I was, I'm good at math. Oh, I didn't, oh I, didn't, I didn't notice. But true humility is less of those things, right? Like, how do I, how do I stack up to other people? Less about how, how do I present myself and my gifts and all these other things. It's less about those things and much more about who is first. In my thoughts, in my decisions, in my actions, who is first. Am I thinking about how this would affect me first, or am I thinking about how this would glorify God? The opposite then, pride, this kind of perennial sin that has plagued created beings since we were created, is not then kind of fundamentally thinking too high about your gifts, or fundamentally um, bragging about things you have. Those, I think, those would certainly qualify for pride. I think most, most basically is Pride is this arrogance that wants to be God and stand where he stands, right? Pride is this arrogance that wants to be like God, wants to be first. Let me give you two examples of where we see this in scripture. Um, one is uh, Satan. He started as an angel of light, right? And then he sinned and fell. What happened to him? What was the thing that tempted him We actually... Uh, get just a little bit of info about it in Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 14. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. So that's Satan. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the Mount of Assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. What did Satan then use to tempt Adam and Eve in the garden? Genesis 3, 5. For God knows that when you eat of it, that tree of the knowledge of good and evil that God told you not to eat from, he knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. I will make myself like the most high. I will be like God, the creation, wants to be like the creator. We want to be first. From Adam and Eve till now, we as, we as people, as humanity, have wrestled with wanting to be first, the priority, and struggled against the place God has given us. 
And so we, we need to avoid the temptation to, uh, to be the attention, the focus, the priority, the authority God has, and instead, like John, be content with the role God has given us. So maybe you um, don't have the friends or the family you'd like to have at this point. In this phase of life, maybe I was hoping to be married by now. I was hoping to have kids by now. I was hoping to have more kids. I was hoping to be financially independent. I was hoping that my retirement account would be a little further along. I was hoping my health would be better to live there, live here, etc. The list could go on and on. None of those desires are bad in themselves, but can we be content or can we even rejoice with where God has placed us in those things, with our role that God has given us? I think it's helpful to think of in terms of ministry too. Obviously, it's something I think a lot about because my my full-time job is, is, you know, this kind of like formal ministry ministry. And I, I think about, um, and I, I worked at before, uh, a big church of, it was like a little under 2,000 people and uh, when I was doing my residency in seminary. And um, I feel like in co- ch- American church culture in general, like pastors want to work for like big Mega churches, right? There's lots of security and financial and popularity and just all these different things, right? Like people want to work for big churches. And, and can I be content in whatever ministry or whatever role God has given me? And FYI, I am content. I'm super thankful for, for our church family and to be here and, and, and what God has given me. But can I be content with this ministry that, that God has given me when culture pulls me in this other direction. And some of you in, in church, uh, in, in our church family, who have, who have kind of taken greater leadership roles can feel this, right? If you have a, a team or, or people you're leading, that's when that team or that group gets smaller or people, because people move away or switch or, <clears throat> excuse me, or drop out for whatever reason. That's hard, right? That's hard. And I want to, to brag on our small group leaders just for a minute, we launched two small groups this fall. And part of why we were able to do that is because they were willing to let their groups decrease. Right? They, they sent they out people, they lost people in their group so that they can kind of seed or help start these new groups. It's, it's like very literal. Their group is decreasing in size so that other groups can increase or the, the kind of health of the ministry as a whole can increase. And it's hard. Most of us spend a majority of our ministry, though, kind of in our jobs or in our homes as spouse or, or with our children, right? That's a lot of our, our ministry is in those kind of more informal ways. And a lot of us have a lot of ambition in those things. But what are we ambitious for? Work can become more about the promotion or attaining a certain lifestyle or certain income rather than opportunities to minister and to provide and to be generous and to share the gospel with your coworkers. Marriage can easily be, become more about fulfilling as many of my desires as possible rather than counting your spouse's desires as more important and serving them. Parenting can become more about your own ease and comfort, right? Because at the end of the day, 
Obedient children are easier and more comfortable than disobedient children. <laughs> Can become more about my comfort than it is about uh, raising them up to know the Lord and, and being consistent in correction and, and, and um, discipline so that they can be righteous people. God has given us all these different ministries in our lives. And, and whatever that is for you, whatever those ministries are that you have, whether they're formal or informal, our, our mantra, our, our idea should be in all of them that God, Jesus must increase and I must decrease. He must be first and I must be second. God has given each and every one of us a purpose, a role, and are you content with yours? Because when we, when we accept our position, that we see our second point, that when Jesus is first, then I find lasting joy. When Jesus is first, then I find lasting joy. I mentioned this contrast before between John the Baptist and his disciples who want kind of their ministry to be the point. And do they seem particularly joyful? And, and my kind of interpretation is, no, they seem more kind of grumpy or complaining than they do joyful. But in contrast, verse 29 says, John the Baptist is, his joy is complete. You're right, he's rejoicing. He's having a great time. And rhetorically, I would ask, which would you rather be? Try to make life ultimately about you, the disciples find it doesn't work and be discontent. Or like John, when you make Jesus the point, you'll find your work fulfilling and you'll find fullness of joy. Then your joy is complete. John is rejoicing because he got to glorify God. He got to point to Jesus. And so when I think about, you know, how do you get this peace that surpasses understanding that we sometimes talk about? How, we, how do we get that pleasure that's supposed to be at God's right hand forevermore? I think... Uh, this is part of that picture, is, is one, knowing our purpose is to, to make Jesus first, to glorify him. I think second of it is, are we, are we cultivating a heart that seeks to find joy in that purpose? Or are we trying to fulfill our purpose and then seek, trying to seek joy in all these other ways? And it's a, a way that we can all kind of fight temptation, whatever the temptation is, um, is by doing that or finding our joy in pleasing God. Or another way to think of it might be um, temptation or, or when we choose to sin seems to come down to is the instant gratification of this thing, whatever it is. Do I view it as better or more attractive than the joy of pleasing God? Or, or is my way of finding joy going to be first, or is God's way of finding joy going to be first? And you'll, you'll go with, you'll do whatever ends up being more important to you, or whatever, whichever one you believe is higher. But when you do that, when, when your joy is found in, in your faithfulness and you're pleasing God, then your joy isn't dependent on circumstances or status or what you think of yourself, or what others think of you. And the list could go on and on, because regardless of all those things, wherever you're at, you can choose to please God. You can be faithful. Jesus pleasing him must be where we seek our joy. Uh, 
Well, we'll find ourselves more like John's disciples, kind of maybe a little grumbling as we compare what we have to others, maybe a little bitterness and jealousy, when we can have fullness of joy right now. Let's move on and read the rest of the passage, starting in verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, and yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. These verses kind of tie together a lot of themes from the whole chapter. Uh, In the immediate context, John, the author John, is explaining why Jesus must increase and why I must decrease. And remembering those things will help us to put Jesus first. These truths will help us to put Jesus first in our own lives. But I think it's circular too. I think um, it'll help us put Jesus first. But as we put Jesus first, we'll better and better able to see who Jesus truly is. And that will in turn help us uh, to see and put Jesus first in our lives. And that's our third point is when Jesus is first, then I see Jesus for who he truly is. When Jesus is first, then I see Jesus for who he truly is. I'm going to actually talk about four specific things here, kind of four subpoints. I'm sure there's more that we could get from this passage, but just for the sake of time, I'll talk about four. Um, the first one is this, that Jesus is in control. Jesus is in control. He comes from above and he is above all things. John The rest of us are from the earth, speak earthly things. John's baptism was inferior to Jesus' baptism, which is from heaven, baptism with the Holy Spirit. Last week, we talked about verse 13, how no one has ascended into heaven, but only the Son of Man has descended from heaven. It's something that makes him totally unique. We already talked about um, verse 27, everything we have, everything that has been given to us, even our our life, every breath we breathe, the life he sustains in us, all of it is given to us as a gift from God. And that should make us thankful, right? If if I didn't earn any of this, if all this is a gift, I should be thankful. I didn't build this on my own. It speaks to our purpose to glorify God, right? If, If my life, if everything I have was given to me by God, I should use it for him, should also eliminate any temptation to feel entitled. After all, if, if everything I have is a, a gift, if I'm not owed anything, then why should I feel entitled to it? Or if it gets taken away? And ultimately, your role, just like John the Baptist's role, just like my role, just your position in life was given to you by God, who is sovereign. And that enables us to kind of take a step back and say, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of things that are hard, that don't make sense, okay, God, I, I see you. I don't, I don't know what you're doing. I don't know what's going on, what all this is about. But 
You must be doing something and rejoice like John. Second is Jesus is true. Verse 32 and 33 are ironic because it says God is true. He's always honest. He can't lie. It's part of kind of fundamentally who he is, his nature, what makes him God. And yet it says they didn't receive his testimony. People didn't receive his testimony. I mean, his, one of his names is literally faithful and true. So of course we should, we here should take special care to believe in him and trust in him and his words. But I think knowing that also helps us contrast him with ourselves, right? We who uh, deceive, we who have a limited kind of perspective, we don't know everything that's going on. We who don't know everything, we who don't know the future, we who sometimes believe something to be true, which isn't, and then tell other people, right, we accidentally spread deceit and don't even know it. And when we think about it that way, it's like, well, of course Jesus should be, be in control, right? I mean, if he's true and, and sovereign and all these things. Uh, and yet, because we're not thinking of these things, and, right, and probably something hard's going on that's kind of prompting this, but in that moment, something not fun going on in our lives, we deceive ourselves, and, and that's when we can say, when we're not thinking about these things, I have a better plan, right? That's when we say, I, I have a better plan. This isn't super fun. I actually have this better plan, Jesus, that I think will be, be better. Three, Jesus is generous. Verse 34 says he gives the Spirit without measure. It means it's, it's an unlimited gift. He's not, he's not measuring out how much he's, he's giving. Um, and this principle we've been talking about, that we receive nothing unless it comes to us from above. It comes to us from God and we've been given so much, haven't we? Haven't we been given, been given so much? I mean, we just think about Jesus dying on the cross for us, that access we have to, to eternal life, salvation, justification through what he's done. And that's everything, right? That, I mean, if that was it, that would be awesome, right? That would be so generous. And yet, haven't we been given so much more? family, friends, employment, somewhere to live, something to eat. I personally live like a king, right? I have in my pocket more entertainment than I could possibly consume if I just sat here and watched YouTube videos for the rest of my life, right? There would be more YouTube that I haven't seen than I had seen, right? There's, there's unlimited books and movies and videos and websites and things that we could have access to. That, that sort, sort of limitless entertainment access is dangerous too, but, but it is a gift. <laughs> I have a huge variety of food I can choose from. I just go to the store and pick out what I want. I get to, in my home, I don't know how the thermostat goes at your house, but in my home, <laughs> we get to keep it in a very specific range of temperatures, right, that I find comfortable, right? Just, just within a few degrees, my, my living environment has to be this way, right? Which is impossible for a vast majority of, of people that have, have lived in the history of, of humanity, right? And we have all these blessings and all these things, and it's easy for us to focus on instead those things we don't have, or those things we wish were different. I challenge you 
if Jesus doesn't feel very generous to you or if you, you don't feel very content or very thankful, just take some time every day, at the end of the day, write out 15 things I'm thankful to Jesus for from today. And I think if you do, if you do that faithfully, if you do that every day, you'll come to find that you are a little less bitter, a little less jealous, and gradually over time, growing more and more thankful and more content. And finally, Jesus is the only way to life. Of course, this is a, a major theme throughout the, the book of John, but since it's mentioned in 36, verse 36, I want to mention it again since I'm preaching on this passage. It's those who believe in the Son and obey him who have life. And of course, these, he's talking about here, first and foremost, eternal life for those who put their, their faith and trust in Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross for them for the forgiveness of their sins. But I think also life in the sense of the joy that John the Baptist had throughout his life. Counterintuitively, it's, it's when we make Jesus first that we find that fulfillment and that joy and that contentment that we're after in life. And when we make ourselves first, when we're, when we're striving and kind of running after it, we're being selfish, we grasp for it, that joy seems to always slip through our fingers. And if that's your experience, I'd invite you to make Jesus first today. That's where you'll find it. That's where you'll find the joy you're looking for, the fulfillment in your life. Jesus puts it like this. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for sending your son to die for us. That we might receive the fullness of your spirit and to see and know the one who is first for paving a way for us to even see ourselves as second. We confess that so often um, we try and strive to increase ourselves and make ourselves first. And when we do that, you inevitably decrease or, or are second. Father, forgive us. Thank you for your grace and forgiveness. Help us to always put you first and to know the joy of pleasing you and giving you glory. In the name of your Son, amen.